peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Greetings, everybody out there in dreamland. Namaste, Angelo. Iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you very much for tuning into another broadcast of the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast. I am your host, Beyond Top Secret Texan, broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas. And it is my privilege to do so. Very fortunate I won the Cosmic Lottery. I am a native to the Gulf Coast of Texas. Absolutely beautiful and wonderful country. Absolutely amazing territory. Ecosystem like no other. If you can listen, that's one of our many wild Navy trainer planes. It is the season to fly over my house while I give my podcast. So thank you very much. If you would like to know more about my goings on and be better notified about my production progress, whether uploading new episodes or working with guests, either to interview or be interviewed by, I cannot say without, that's not even a weird way to put it, I cannot tell you a better link then Linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan. Because that one link, like I said, I can't find one other way to find everything that I do easier, simpler, more efficiently than simply typing in to your search bar or your Linktree app. Linktree, which is link tr.ee slash beyond top secret Texan that'll bring you up all my social media my most relevant and active web pages as well as podcast platform URLs and quick links that includes to Twitter that includes to YouTube that includes to um, various other video platforms that includes to my Instagram, that includes to Spotify, that includes to Anchor FM, that includes to my podpage.com slash beyond top secret Texan page, and that includes to my merchandise web store. Go ahead, check out the merchandise store, pick yourself up something for summer, something to strut around the beaches or malls with short sleeve 
or shirt or sleeveless shirt deep v-neck I picked a merchant that provides the best quality and I did so to pass on a good item, a good merchandise item whatever you get hat, bag uh, cell phone cover clothing item, shirt men's, women's long sleeve, hoodies check out the merchandise store for Beyond Top Secret Texan and you can find it with Linktree new merchandise added very frequently on the merchandise store if you would like to support me through Patreon, my patreon.com slash beyond top secret text, text all capitalized TX. That link also in link tree. So you can find it there. If you would like to support me through subscribing and liking my videos on YouTube, link is there, as well as all the archive episodes for the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast. So thank you all very much in advance, those who decide to support me monetarily by subscribing to this podcast. You can do that through Anchor FM slash Beyond Top Secret Texan. Anchor FM is my headquarters, my homepage, the provider of this podcast, the RSS, all that, the, the software that helps record it. So Anchor FM slash Beyond Top Secret Texan, subscribe, help contribute if you would like to, if you so choose to keep this channel going into the future, patreon.com slash beyond top secret text is the new and improved Patreon page. The other was taken down as well as cash app, cash app beyond top secret Texan. Thank you very much. If you have any questions on how to reach me, First, try Linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan. All the links will be there that are currently active, all of it updated, as well as try to leave me a message either through Instagram or Twitter. So thank you very much. We are going to be continuing with every Monday going forward for the foreseeable future, trying this out for Season 4, trying it out, seeing if... Both I like it and you like it, seeing if we're both jiving on the same page. So far, it's pretty good. I've typically posted public access information from obscure books available through the public libraries, uh, internet library archives, various accounts, various web pages, various audio presentations that are rare documentaries helping highlight and explain certain obscure and fringe belief systems, phenomena, what we would know as the occult. Well, I'm going to be broadcasting these every Monday instead of every full or new moon. Instead of twice a month we're going to be posting it every Monday, every week. And when possible, I will be reading them. No longer relying on a text-to-voice service or no longer relying on finding audio versions 
through open source. I myself will actually be reading as many of these narratives as I can, as many of these texts as I can. <coughs> Sorry, I started this with, last week with Mac Tonis's Crypto Terrestrial Hypothesis Part 1 read the first half of the publicly available ebook and now we ended on chapter 7 so that was 1 through 6 and now we're going to be reading into the ending of the book so this is Crypto Terrestrial Hypothesis by Mac Tonis Published posthumously, 2010, just to bring everyone up to speed, he suffered a fatal heart attack that was very suspicious at the age of 34. He had been working on this hypothesis much to the same degree as Jacques Valle and John Keel in their research into the super spectrum, just to bring everyone up to speed. Uh, please listen to the first part if you have not heard it. Um, if you have and are willing to keep going forward, now we're going to be moving onward, reading from this point forward. So thank you very much in advance. You guys are the best audience out there in dreamland. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you once again for tuning into the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast. Chapter 7. The Super Spectrum. Given that radiation like that used by cell phones can infringe on human consciousness, and I think it's very probable it can, we have to question our role in this emerging electronic ecology. If John Keel is correct and we share the planet with ultra-terrestrials who occupy higher realms of an unseen superspectrum, one wonders if we could be upsetting the superspectral hierarchy by marinating our world in a stew of microwaves. Conversely, maybe the advent of widespread cell communication is analogous to the role of fungi, according to Terence McKenna. Instead of viewing ubiquitous cell towers as intrusive and harmful, maybe we should look at them as totems through which we might communicate with unseen intelligences. I've always thought it interesting that so many UFOs have been witnessed over military installations with advanced radar technology. Some alleged UFO occupants have even ventured the idea that radar somehow interferes with the operation of their craft, one proposed explanation for the Roswell incident. In any case, there appears to be a link between the artificial radiation and alien visitors, and since some UFOs possess documented microwave properties, we're left with the possibility that we're only now inadvertently acknowledging their arrival. What this means in the long term is anyone's guess. Maybe by inundating the skies with our collective voice, we're offering the ultra-terrestrials a sort of Trojan horse, a technological substrate through which they can penetrate our reality with unprecedented ease. I find broadcast towers oddly frightening. Maybe they're not tinfoil hats scary, but they sound a quiet alarm. We seldom take the time to look up and actually see things, which is perhaps understandable since they're everywhere. Anonymous spurs skewering the clouds and filling the sky with unknown chatter. If we're evolving faster to meet the demands of an increasingly compromised planet, I suppose it's not out of the realm a possibility 
that our brains are being forced to adapt to the ubiquitous electromagnetic fog spawned by the telecommunications industry. Maybe some UFOs are in a way our minds have developed to make sense of the onslaught of radio and microwave radiation that permeates modern culture. Radio inundation might be ripping holes in the collective unconscious, leaving conspicuous voids to be filled. Albert Budden has speculated along similar lines. He described abductions as the psyche's way of maintaining identity when faced with acute allergic distress. I'm actually quite interested in the esoteric neurological effects of electromagnetic exposure. One of the most original UFO books in the last two decades is UFO Psychic Close Encounters, The Electromagnetic Indictment by Albert Budden, who hypothesizes that EM hotspots can result in a variety of troubling paranormal experiences, including evident hauntings and, you guessed it, alien abductions. It's worth remembering that ufologist Jock Valley has credited genuine UFOs with emitting microwaves, which may play a similar hallucinogenic role in some close encounters. And debunkers are fond of citing the work of Michael Persinger, whose experiments with the EM fields and human subjects suggest a link between the sense of presence associated with altered states of consciousness and seismic stress. Close encounter witnesses almost invariably describe electromagnetic anomalies both in the presence of UFOs and entities and in the mundane surroundings. I'm drawn to the possibility that some abductions are energetic intrusions of some sort, a hypothesis that nuts and bolts pundits are likely to deride. Perhaps instead of focusing on recovering memories of events occluded by the missing time, researchers should attempt to comprehensively electrical profile of the witness's nervous system and vicinity. To my knowledge, the only researcher to undertake a rigorous survey of the electromagnetic environment's impact on the experiencer is Albert Budden, who has come to accept that alien visitation and hauntings alike can be attributed to electromagnetic hotspots, interacting with the human brain. Budden's model hinges on the human brain's ability to conjure convincing hallucinatory states, and while there is no doubt the brain can be remotely stimulated to produce otherworldly imagery through both EM and chemical means, Laboratory tests have thus far failed to produce anything comparable to an archetypical abduction experience. The frustrating lack of repeatability in the clinical environment invites the possibility that we're dealing with an external phenomenon of considerable power and complexity. Could we, in fact, be dealing with a form of non-human consciousness that takes the form of plasma? I sometimes see these entities during meditation. Eyes barely open, soft focus, writes Cartot, author of the Post Reason blog. They stand floating about me, seeming to modulate a field of energy around me. I especially sense their hands, combing their energy. There always seems to be one primary entity, usually right in my face. Others are more in the background. I don't get any verbal communications from them. As this description illustrates, the gray archetype seems to possess the ability to manifest in a visionary manner. If so, who's responsible? Who could be dealing with hardwired neurological phenomenon, as argued by researchers like Michael Persinger and Albert Budden. Conversely, recurrent images of the greys in varying stages of physicality and in multitude of contexts beg the idea that they exist independently of the brain, at least temporarily. The close encounter literature is rife with accounts in which abductees convinced their visitors are flesh and blood encounter their assailants in apparent out-of-body and similarly altered states, suggesting that greys and their kin can maneuver in and out of our ontological framework of reality at will. What 
might this say about the origin of our visitors if indeed we're dealing with an externally imposed intelligence? Perhaps instead of hailing from space, the greys emanate from a much closer source, as Whitley Strieber suggests in Communion. They could be an unacknowledged aspect of the human psyche and thus indistinguishable from mental aberration. As pioneering consciousness researcher Rick Strassman has shown, the aggressively psychedelic compound DMT can produce tellingly similar encounters, offering the novel idea that our brains can function as receivers or portals. Ultimately, some of us might serve as nothing less than transportation devices for incorporeal intelligence, which might explain why some individuals seem predisposed to contact and pageantry of strangeness that often accompanies it. I'm reminded of Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, in which the planet is effectively a single biological entity. Maybe UFOs and their occupants are cast members in some vast planetary drama with no actual role other than perpetrating themselves. UFOs and their accompanying entities might be subconsciously reminding us of the potential apocalyptic burden we bear as an industrial species, all the while encouraging us, via their apparent technological prowess, that we lessen our environmental signature by migrating into space. Such a scenario complements the control system proposed by Jacques Vallée and suggests a link with the collective unconscious explored by Jung. Most notably, in Flying Saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the skies. But where do they come from? If the UFO phenomenon is generated by Earth itself, perhaps it is most, the, most using the nervous system as a kind of operating system. Its enduring physicality argues that it can manipulate consciousness in such a way that individuals can function as unwitting projectors. If so, the study of UFOs might eventually lead to a new understanding of the role of awareness. One day, through careful back-engineering of our own minds, we might employ UFO-like abilities through thought alone, in which case the UFO phenomenon risks becoming obsolete. But don't forget the idea of other dimensions for a moment. Perhaps Jacques Vallée proposed psychic thermostats, while a well-intentioned attempt to reconcile UFO observations with the psychedelic effects isn't necessary needed to encompass the weirdness of alien visitation. Forget also the idea that aliens are necessary necessarily from space. Instead, let's assume for adventure's sake that we're sharing the planet with a flesh-and-blood offshoot of the human species. As I've tried to demonstrate, the prospect isn't as absurd as it initially seems. Indeed, I expect it will seem much less so when we've learned more about our world in our relatively brief tenure here. It bears mentioning that eminent primatologist Jane Goodall has defended the scientific search for Bigfoot, or cryptohominid, commonly described as enormous. Assuming a gigantic and proportionately foul-smelling primate can successfully lay low, it may be substantially easier for an intelligent technical society, with a tested capacity for stealth and a full repertoire of disinformation tricks, to dodge our radars. Astrophysicists discern black holes, the invisible corpse of collapsed stars, by detecting their gravitational influence on neighboring phenomenon. Similarly, the search for extrasolar life hinges on the belief that technological civilizations, regardless how advanced, will necessarily betray their existence via electromagnetic emissions. Freeman Dyson, for instance, has suggested hunting for alien megascale engineering by looking at its distinctive energetic signatures. We can apply the same basic principles to the search for non-human intelligences here on Earth. If some UFOs are indeed the work of an indigenous race, we ought to be able to detect the inevitable. Signatures, it's imprinted on the planet. This confirming evidence can take many forms. Anomalous fossils, genetic traces, mystery transmissions, and even inexplicable artifacts. 
Our technology-driven our technology -driven world is effectively shrinking at a pace that threatens to obliterate the remaining wilderness areas. At the same time, we continue to map the continents and oceans, not to mention the surfaces of other planets, with ever-improving instrumentation. It stands to reason that the CTH, the cryptoterrestrial hypothesis, is attestable. In other words, no matter how addicting to seclusion, a parallel society will eventually betray its existence. But maybe they don't want to be found. Maybe they'd prefer to observe from the balcony unseen and unsuspected while we go about our blundering affairs on stage. If so, then they've almost certainly noticed the hazard repose to their maintained stealth. And while they might be our technologically superiors, one couldn't blame them for being at least a little concerned. Whitley Strieber has marked that this visitors, the subject of the best-selling communion and subsequent books that delve into the ufological realm, accomplish their agenda largely through stealth and cunning. Their technology, as, as enviable as it may be, is secondary. Strieber attributes the reduction in his encounters with non-humans to the fact that he no longer resides in his isolated New York cabin, but in the busy community of San Antonio. Apparently, the visitors, whoever they are, are daunted by the ubiquity of modern civilization, able to exist among us for only limited periods, and even then assisted by considerable disguise and technical savvy. In many ways, this would be an appalling predicament for hy hypothetical ultra-terrestrials. For most of the human history, they ha would have enjoyed unimpeded dominance. Humans without a global media infrastructure would have been easier to fool and perhaps to exploit than we are now. Or do I err on the side of overconfidence? In almost any event, the others would have been compelled to misdirect us in order to maintain cultural coherence. I suspect that the prevailing notion that they hail from outer space originates from an overarching disinformation campaign with roots that predate humanity as we know it. For millennia... We've interpreted them according to the disguises they adopt, each tailored to mesh with the given paradigm. Even a cursory overview of world folklore indicates that this ability is extraordinarily well honed. It may be their most zealously guarded secret. However, I suggest that our abrupt transformation into a global, intricately networked society poses a grave challenge to what has traditionally been a routine effort. We may be on the threshold of some oblique form of contact. Alternatively, this contact may have begun in modern times, marked by the emergence of the contemporary UFO phenomenon and the equally alarming epidemic of so-called alien abductions. Jacques Vallée has remarked somewhat famously about the possibility of futility of trying to look behind the curtain what might be, we be confronted with. Given the opportunity, could we even comprehend what we're seeing? Like the origin of the aliens themselves, this sense of existential humility may prove to be a clever construct designed to limit our perceptions. Chapter 8. Waterworld I watched James Cameron's movie The Abyss with a true sense of wonder, realizing that while a sufficiently advanced technology may indeed be indistinguishable from magic, absolute stealth could remain a grave concern even for technologically accomplished species. The oceans are the obvious refuge for ETs who prefer to inhabit our planet in relative privacy, and it's probably no more coincidence that so many UFOs are reported near large bodies of water. Bodies of water play a significant role in UFO lore. Crafts are seen rising from the lakes and oceans. Sailors observe remarkable wheels of light rotating beneath the hulls of their boats, the aquatic equivalent to today's accounts of buzzed airliners. 
the mystery can be traced to the dawn of recognized human society. The Sumerian Oans myth maintains the civilization itself was a gift from beings who hailed from underwater. Before the detrimental pop cultural impact of Eric von Däniken, champion of untenable ancient astronaut theories, none other than Carl Sagan speculated that the Sumerian tale might represent an actual account of a meeting with non-human intelligences. Of course, Sagan had in mind visiting extraterrestrials. Given the contemporary evidence for a non-human intelligence on this planet, the Owens myth might instead represent contact between two very different types of terrestrials. That the Sumerians' enigmatic neighbors were interested in passing along the very concepts that would transform humans into city dwellers is intriguing in light of Charles Fort's famous contention that we are the property of an intelligence that elects to remain unseen. Maybe by concentrating large numbers of humans into unprecedentedly small enclaves, the human race is being made more amenable to crypto-terrestrial surveillance. Equally engaging is the continued interest crypto-terrestrials display in human affairs. From unsolicited health checkups to warnings of imminent ecological cataclysm, our fellow planetary residents appear deeply concerned about our plight, both as a species and in some cases suggesting individuals. If our alleged visitors originate with some distant planet, this is obsessive, long-lived attempt to steer the course of our psychosocial evolution certainly challenges modern thought on what they might be up to. City theorists, for example, have cited radio communications as plausible means by which we might be contacted by extraterrestrials. Fortunately, the prospect of an interstellar travel has gained footing among mainstream scientists, challenging prevailing dogma that for decades confined hypothetical ETs to their home planetary systems. Some astronomers have even hazardly, or hazardly ways the aliens might betray their existence, from scattered microscopic artifacts to automated construction sites in the asteroid belt. Despite the inexorably warm attitude toward E.T. visitation, mainstream thinkers still prefer the image of aliens as stealthy clinical observers. UFOs with their conspicuously visible antics shatter this model. Many debunkers attempt feliciously to dismiss the phenomenon precisely because it fails to conform with expectations. If E.T.s are cool and detached, it doesn't make immediate sense why they would have such a severe stake in our existence. If UFOs themselves seem like a chauncey evidence of E.T. visitors, face-to-face -face encounters with actual occupants who moreover look not unlike us seem exceptionally surreal. But if we were instead dealing with indigenous beings, it's easier to understand why aliens might have caused for alarm. Their intervention throughout history indicates that they need us for reasons that are seldom forthcoming. If crypto-terrestrials are members of a hive society with access to genetic engineering, I can't help but wonder how they'd go about colonizing the oceans and what precisely they might be doing there. If the Sumerian Onus myth is a true account of interspecies contact, then perhaps they really are our benefactors, intended on steering us clear to our full potential, although some would argue not entirely without justification that the hunter-gatherer societies are fundamentally healthier and less environmentally abusive than the urban communities that debuted, in, or that debuted in Mesopotamia. The burden question in my mind is why an advanced non-human intelligence would expend considerable resources to hasten our development. Maybe they're effective farmers using humans for our genetics, a notion in keeping with the reptilian agenda promoted by conspiracy extremists. 
The alleged aliens described by Bob Lazar supposedly viewed humans as containers, but whether this term denoted DNA or something transcendent was never satisfactorily explained. Whitley Strieber would argue compellingly that the visitors cherish us as repositories of what we can only call souls. Alternatively, Bud Hopkins would insist, perhaps just as compellingly, that we're being harvested to serve a long-term hybridization program. When abductees question their captors regarding their agenda, they're usually met with cryptic blurbs. For instance, Whitley Strieber writes that he was told simply that his tormentors had a right to snatch him from his bed and extract his semen. In recent years, Strieber has publicly compared the infamous rectal probe to an electrostimulator, a device used to induce ejaculation in livestock. While the implications are frightening, it's at least easier to understand the brevity in which he depicted his abductions in 1987's communion. Unfortunately, the ubiquitous rectal probe quickly cemented itself into our cultural fabric, fueling the conviction that Strieber's assailants were dispassionate interstellar scientists with an inordinate interest in stool specimens. The many cases in which humans witness hybrid beings with human and alien traits call for a reconciliation with ancient contact mythology. And non-humans are responsible, if non-humans are responsible in part for maintaining or catalyzing the human legacy, it would appear their reasons are more selfish than altruistic. Strangely, their desire for our continued survival, if only for the sake of genetic material, may have played a substantial role in helping us to avoid extinction during the Cold War when the UFO phenomenon evolved in our skies. Much to the consternation of officialdom, the wave of sightings in 1947, for example, seems calculated to appeal to the collective unconscious in ways deftly explored in Carl Jung's The Flying Saucers. Later sightings or flaps possess the same sense of theater, eventually leading French astrophysicist Jacques Vallée to suggest that we were in the grips of an existential control system. Well aware of the ETHs, the extraterrestrial hypothesis gnawing limitations, Vallée postulated a multiverse in which the controlling intelligence originated in a parallel reality. This did away with the need for easy visitors and helped explain the seemingly absurdities of close encounters in the 1960s when the aliens were regularly sighted miming the exploits of our own Apollo astronauts. It also offered a new way to address the folklore theme of non-human contact that prevails in desperate cultures, from the Irish fairy faith to the ant people of the Hopi. According to Valley and John Keel, the UFO contact phenomenon was necessarily duplicitous, adept at exploiting the witnesses' belief system in order to appear comprehensible. In Valley's view, the UFO intelligence is quite real and manifests itself in order to ensure we conform to some inexplicable ideal, but the spacecraft, regardless of physical evidence, are ultimately illusions, albeit studiously crafted. In contrast, the hypothesis put forth here argues that some UFOs are in fact real vehicles, were not under siege by anthropomorphic ETs or goblins from hyperspace. The beings behind the curtain are eminently tangible. They insinuate themselves into our ontological context not to confuse us, but to camouflage ourselves. The UFO speculates takes on a flavor of myth because it wants to be discounted. At the same time, knowing that their activities are bound to be seen and at least occasionally the occupants deliberately infuse their appearance with what we might expect a genuine extraterrestrial travelers. It's a formidable disguise, but it can be pierced. Chapter 9 Underground. The subterranean connection isn't limited to sightings of unknown objects emerging from bodies of water. 
It seems to play a critical, perhaps central role in the testimony of many abductees who describe finding themselves transported into apparent caverns teeming with alien activities. One of the first contemporary abductees to address seemingly below-ground structures was Betty Anderson, whose story has been partially chronicled to several volumes by investigator Raymond Fowler. Anderson's experience with apparent ETs is one of the most metaphysically charged abductions narratives on record, filled with marvels that seem to have no purpose other than to elicit emotional reactions from the witness. Despite Fowler's diligence as a reporter, he follows the conventional wisdom, concluding that Andreas has been the subject of a decades-long extraterrestrial abduction program. But given the alien's obvious penchant for elaborate visual metaphors and special effects trickery, it's unclear why Fowler and and like-minded researchers invoke star-hopping visitors. The abduction experience is far more ambiguous. Upon close inspection, the perceived need for E.T. Weathers... Replaced by a thicket of unwelcome questions, the abduction phenomenon thus resolutely denies itself. It is up to us whether to accept this as deliberate challenge on behalf of the controlling intelligence or to abide by any limitations. Cryptoterrestrial lore is replete with allusions to underground habitats, subterranean labyrinths, and even modern-day below-ground facilities staffed in part by government operatives. From Richard Shaver's fanciful paranoid tales of the Daros to Bob Lazar's depiction of S-4, allegedly a super-secret base a stone's throw away from Area 51, the alien meme challenges us with the prospect that our world is separated from the other by the merest of partitions. And that deliberate challenge on behalf of a controlling intelligence are to abide by its limitations. Crypto-terrestrial lore is replete with allusions to underground habitat, subterranean labyrinths navigable only to an enlightened few, and even modern-day below-ground facilities staffed in part by government operatives. From Richard Shaver's fanciful... Oh, sorry. CT... Alright. That was... Sorry about that. Crypto-terrestrials are almost as comfortable in our bedrooms and our roadsides as they are in our own realm. The image of a hollow earth populated by beings remarkably like ourselves, but by no means new. Yet the modern-day UFO phenomenon has infused it with a newly conspiratorial vigor. Stories of alien bases below the unassumingly bleak surface of the American Southwest surface in the wake of the Majestic 12 controversy, carving the mythos into irresistibly new shapes. In Revelations, Jacques Vallée recounts a memorable exchange with the late Bill Cooper and Linda Melton Howe told matter-of-factly about the existence of a sprawling subterranean base near Dulce, New Mexico Valley asked his host where the presumed aliens disposed of their garbage. A sensible question if one assumes that the greys in question are physical beings burdened with corresponding physical requirements. Valley's question is of obvious importance to the crypto-terrestrial inquiry. If we really are sharing the planet with a parallel species, searching for underground installations becomes imperative for any objective investigation. Our failures to find any blatant cities beneath the planet's surface invites many questions. Could the crypto-terrestrials have colonized our oceans, potentially explaining centuries of bizarre aquatic being sightings? Have they intermingled to the point where they're effectively indistinguishable from us and live in our cities? Finally, we're forced to consider that at least some CTs 
Crypto terrestrials have achieved genuine space travel, throwing our definitional framework into havoc. Space-based CTs would be extraterrestrials in the sense argued by ufological pundits, but they would be something engagingly other. Even if the difference separating them from their earthbound peers is substantial as that distinguished or as, or as substantial as that distinguishing astronauts from humans of more mundane professions. Still, the prospect of an underground origin beckons with inexorable logic that colors our most treasured contemporary myths. Given our yearning, yawning ignorance of our own planet, especially its oceans, which remain stubbornly mysterious, it remains worthy of consideration that at least from the lusty politics of Mount Olympus to Shaver's pulp cosmology complete with telepathic harassment and other ingredients later found in serious, quote-unquote serious, UFO abduction literature, even a cursory assessment of the subterranean realm and its mythology indicates a non-human presence of surprisingly human dimensions. This, strikingly for, this striking familiarity, as unlikely in the case of genuine extraterrestrial contact, Meshes with modern occupant reports, which typically depict humanoid beings seen in the context of extraordinary technology. Velas Boas from Brazil had sex with a diminutive female, while strangely mannered, can hardly be termed alien in the purest sense of the word. The alarming fact that intercourse was possible at all smacks of an encounter between two human beings an observation routinely dismissed by proponents of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, who seem inordinately enamored of Vilas Boas's own conviction that he had been used as a breeding stock for a race of apparent gray space people. The beings encountered by Betty and Barney Hill seem at least as human when addressed safely outside the confines of the extraterrestrial hypothesis dogma. Even Betty's dialogue with the leader has the nuanced, bantering quality of two strangers attempting to come to grips with a mutual predicament. Indeed, the being's puzzlement when confronted with dentures tends to argue in favor of the CTH. Crypto-terrestrial hypothesis. We might reasonably expect bona fide extraterrestrial anthropologists to set aside the minor mystery of artificial teeth with clinical detachment. Instead, Betty's ability to note her abductor's astonishment, feigned or genuine, detracts from the ETH by indicting a suspiciously human report. Since I began writing about indigenous alignments in early 2006, readers have pointed out parallels with similar esoteric theories, usually involving interdimensional travel of some sort. To be fair, the crypto-terrestrial prospect isn't as new as it seems, and readers new to Fortiana may be struck home upon encountering the work of William Michael Mott, a researcher enamored of mythological tales of lost civilizations and underground habitats. His book, Caverns, Cauldrons, and Concealed Creatures, suggests that there is very strong circumstantial evidence based on folklore, mythology, or mythology, religion, archaeology, geology, history, and also on eyewitness and anecdotal accounts that indicate that we have always shared our planet with one or more hidden civilizations of an advanced nature, which are generally inimical, parasitical, or indifferent to humanity. It is feasible that the alleged aliens that occupy historical and contemporary mythology are flesh-and-blood, human-like creatures that live right here on Earth. Not another version of our Earth in some parallel cosmos, but our very own Earth. 
The linchpin of this crypto-terrestrial hypothesis is that at least some of the more remarkable abilities displayed by the reported aliens are in fact subterfuge. Immersive fictional scenarios staged to convince us that we must be dealing with beings of another star system. Valet and Keel have, of course, argued much the same thing, but both have maintained, unnecessarily in my opinion, that the beings must hail from somewhere else, not outer space, but an unseen parallel realm that makes them outer space options seem almost preferable. <coughs> Needless to say, today's UFOlogical pundits have decided to stick with the ETH. Sure, it's weird and by no means offers a holistic understanding of the phenomenon it purports to explain, but at least it makes sense in light of our own technological trajectory. After all, we've visited space, albeit briefly, the ETH, the overall appearance of a logical extrapolation. This ETH is a synthesis. In keeping with the nuts and bolts tradition, it incorporates that we know about our planet and its biology and arrives at a prospective anthropology of the other. It eschews interstellar travel in favor of beings that may not be nearly as alien as we've been conditioned to expect by the media and, as I argue, by the UFO intelligence itself. The crypto-terrestrial hypothesis has met with mixed reactions. Some Fortians seem to think I'm onto something. Most UFO researchers are, at best, extremely skeptical. Others think I'm parroting John Keel's Superspectrum, a variation on the Parallel Worlds theme that in turn shares memes with Jacques Vallée's multiverse. Both ideas suggest that we somehow occupy dimensional space with our alien visitors, doing away with the need for extraterrestrial spacecraft while maintaining while helping explain the sense of absurdity that accompanies many UFOs and occupant sightings. Keel and Valet have been both ventured essentially occult ideas and cosmological terms, both the superspectrum and the multiverse required a revision of our understanding of the way reality itself works. But the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis is grounded in a more familiar context. I'm not suggesting unseen dimensions or the need for UFO knots to downshift to our level, our conscience, and while I can't automatically exclude the UFO phenomenon's paranormal aspects, I can attempt to explain them in technological terms. For example, I see no damning theoretical reason why telepathy and dematerialization can't ultimately be explained by appealing to cybernetics, nanotechnology, or other fields generally excluded from ufological discourse. Ironically enough, the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis managed to alienate champions of the extraterrestrial hypothesis and those who support a more esoteric, interdimensional explanation. It offers no clear-cut reconciliation. It does, however, wield explanatory potential lacking in both camps. One question that has escaped me is... One question that has escaped me is how, if we're sharing the planet with indigenous aliens, the worsening of our biosphere will impact any potential relations with our secretive neighbors. If they're physical, as I think they are, stand to suffer greatly, for example, human-induced climate disaster sets the Amazon rainforest ablaze, or do they? Perhaps the crypto-terrestrials have taken precautionary measures. Persistent reports of underground bases raise the admittedly alarming possibility that crypto-terrestrials are subterranean. Even descriptions of beings themselves almost invariably include references to large eyes, which proponents of the extraterrestrial hypothesis interpret as an evolutionary advantage for life on planets with diminished sunlight. But large eyes would be equally useful for beings acclimated to tunnels and caverns. Maybe the CTs have constructed effective bunkers 
and are content to let humans continue in their headless destruction of the planet. But then there are the scenes of global cataclysms shown to abductees. Some researchers are understandably wary of viewing these as literal forecasts of the future and see them instead as educational demonstrations. If so, it's plausible that the CTs are attempting to hasten ecological awareness and in the process giving away a grave secret that they aren't the sagely omniscient beings whose role they so often adopt. Their technological wizardry might not be akin to magic. They might actually need us to keep Earth's environment sustainable, just as they may need us for our genetics. And likely for the same ultimate reason that cultivation of an ever-adaptive race whose abilities are beyond our own yet are themselves perfectly fallible. Great aliens on the brain, that's likely what you'll get. That's not to say that greys are the only comprehensible form instigated by fairy energy, only that the ambient intelligence is quick to attach itself to whatever archetype fits the bill at any given moment. Visions of dead people, religious epiphanies, and poltergeist phenomenon are equally possible outcomes. But the intelligence behind the facade might not be native to our planet. Maybe we're dealing with a psychological symbiote that's been re-engineering the Neosphere for hundreds of thousands of years, laying groundwork for a project that's only now beginning to reveal that's only now beginning to reveal itself. While I can readily imagine a subterranean civilization of non-humans, I find the idea that intelligent beings could evolve there unlikely. Secluding themselves in underground bases might be a relatively recent event, time to avoid a mutually catastrophic run-in with Homo sapiens. Caverns and tunnels reportedly crop up in the alien contact literature. Witnesses sometimes describe lavish, below-ground installations teeming with beings that may or may not be related to humans. This is certainly compatible with the idea that our visitors have been here at least as long as recorded history. Spare the toxic excesses of a known civilization, the effect could be inhabited as immense fallout shelters. Having foreseen our own demise and taken elaborate precautions, the apparent need for genetic material might indicate the creation of an interior occupying force or passable hybrids, a scenario explored in David Jacobs' The Threat. The CTH doesn't necessarily entail global civilization of non-humans. In fact, I find the possibility that the cryptocurrencies have managed to remain socially intact throughout the millennia especially tenuous. Witnesses report the common sense alike point a more likely scenario that the CTs are widely variant at different levels of sophistication. While in possession of remarkable abilities, not the least of which is the capacity for stealth, some CT communities might even qualify as primitive in many respects. Some CTs appear eminently comfortable among technologies that historically seem to just be behind the human state of the art. Pilots of the mysterious airships in the 1980s, for example, seem to have anticipated our own dominion of the air at least as capably as Jules Verne. Betty Hill's eerily accurate descriptions of amniocentesis has been cited as another case of alien technology seen in action before its widespread implementation in the human realm. Again, this isn't what we would expect of an arbitrarily capable extraterrestrial civilization. Rather, it suggests a technological surprise, a technology surprisingly like our own. Another indication that the being's casual allusions to outer space should be taken with a dose of healthy skepticism. 
Although we shouldn't presume that some CTs have succeeded in gaining a foothold in space, making them a novel kind of ET, maybe the term post-terrestrial best describes this offshoot. Unfortunately, reports of technological savvy entities or technologically savvy entities have all but eclipsed equally credible reports of less sophisticated beings. After all, advanced beings promise a welcoming future if only indirectly. If we should detect a genuine extraterrestrial civilization, whether through an instrumented search like SETI or via direct visitation, hopes for our, con- for our continued existence stand to reap enormous rewards. Consequently, we yearn for others who are both wiser and more capable. The attractive human-like aliens who contacted the likes of George Adamski and Howard Minger in the middle of the 20th century were hailed as veritable messiahs. Their disdain for reckless atomic experimentation reiterated in the fiction of the day. To a somewhat lesser extent, today's greys, though harsher and more pragmatic than their glamorous predecessors, convey the same messages, exposing their subjects to scenes that appear to predict impending apocalypses. In a world suffering from pronounced greenhouse effects and record-breaking extinctions, these images couldn't come at a more opportune time. Either the CTs are studiously exploiting our deepest fears as part of some far-ranging psychological experiment, or their concerns are quite real. But is it our world they care about or their own? The existence of a primitive CT communities leaves us no choice but to willfully deflate our confidence in the extraterrestrial hypothesis, especially when the gross resemblances of the alleged ETs to humans are so pronounced. For example, I have a reliable first-hand report of little people at large in the American Northwest. My source encountered a small congregation of these beings in a wooded area. Human-like in all essential respects, the beings were nevertheless small, like normal people, in miniature. Although the encounter was brief, my source was able to glean some important information. The little people claimed to predate known North American cultures and possess their own language. As in so many other encounters of meetings with UFO knots or paranormal entities, they appeared Asian. Again, inviting speculation that they originated from a lost community that was opted for a peripheral role, effectively hidden from our society in our very nation. According to the being spokesman, they remain hidden largely by virtue of our narrow perceptual focus, even able to pass among us disguised as children. Supposedly, they lead an almost hobo-like existence without recourse to the sort of technology associated with the UFOs. While this all sounds innocuous enough, my source qualified his story by stating that he felt that his meeting had been arranged not so much for his benefit as for theirs, an unsettling idea that brings to mind a surveillance program of a potentially epic scope. Abductees sometimes report visits by curious human-seeming interlopers or even symptoms consisting with electronic eavesdropping up to and including so-called implants, but just as often strange hissing on the telephone or sudden onset of electrosensitivity, rendering witnesses unable to operate delicate electronics. One abductee I know is plagued by seemingly sourceless beeping, a phenomenon encountered as early as the famous Hill abduction. If I'm correct and down to earth, cryptoterrestrials and ETs are aspects of the same phenomenon. We should expect certain parallels. 
we should expect certain. Uh, sorry, that was twice to be printed. Moreover, we should never believe that the others tell us without taking into account other obvious needs for secrecy. One may argue that the mere fact that they initiate open contact with humans at all reeks of misdirection. And perhaps that's the point, but they could just as easily genuinely need a network of human contacts, a foothold in our world to fall back on in times of crisis. If nomadic CTs are forced to adopt a, or sorry, nomadic CTs are forced to adopt a marginal role in our world, it's unlikely they have easy access to the communications infrastructure we take for granted. Maybe it's no coincidence that my source is a computer programmer, or the truth could be markedly less conspiratorial. Maybe they simply crave a sympathetic ear, and if they can successfully masquerade as children and homeless people, why exclude the occasional pop-in visit as a gray? Chapter 10. Among Us. I'm drawn to a first-person stories of perceived encounters with non-humans. Among them, I find this recollection by Cartot especially notable. When I was 17, I was working in a small convenience store when a woman came to buy cigarettes. At first, I didn't pay any attention to her until I saw her hand when she handed me the money. It was not like a normal human hand. It, this startled me so I looked up and saw a very pale entity wearing a thin black coat like a raincoat. With collar turned up to cover her neck, a heavy, long-haired wig, and very large black sunglasses. This did not entirely hide her strange face, a very pointed chin, scant lip, and nose. She did not speak. I took her cigarettes and left. I was kind of stunned. Oddly, I cannot remember the details of her hand, though it was the first thing I noticed. Nor did I think she left in a car, which was odd since most patrons drove up to the store. It was somewhat isolated. Cartot provided more details of the cigarette lady in a later post. Whether this entity is a gray or a hybrid, I can only guess. I have never seen what is described as a classic gray alien. Perhaps hybrid is most fitting, simply because there seems to be some variety of attributes associated with this general category i.e. that did not fit perfectly with the classic gray alien type, size of head being foremost. Some details I do recall with some clarity. First, her skin. It was very pale, white with almost bluish-gray tint to it, and an unusually small texture, or usually smooth texture. I have never seen anything like it before or since. I had previously seen an albino person. It was nothing like that, i.e. her skin was not unpigmented, though there was an almost translucent quality to it. Second, her facial features. Though I could not see her eyes due to the large Jackie O-style sunglasses she wore, other aspects were evident, an unusually long pointy chin, exaggerated cheekbones out of proportion with the rest of her face, practically no lips, only enough to discern that there was any mouth, a nose that was almost not there. There was very little structure to it, a small bridge area, and some structure around the nostrils, but not much. Finally, her neck. Though her coat collar was turned up, I could see some of the neck, which was oddly thin. The wig, obviously such a long, thick, dishwater blonde mane made of cheap imitation hair easily obtainable at a Kmart in those days, seemed placed to hide other features on her head. So I cannot comment on these. Ears, shape of head. 
It puzzles me why I cannot recall her hand, perhaps because it was what most startled me at first. The only thing I can relate to this lack of recall to it is a nasty car accident I had years later. Afterwards, I completely blanked out the memory of the worst part of the accident, the part when it was occurring. I asked my doctor about this, and I was told that it was not uncommon for the human brain to forget traumatic or difficult events. I can only surmise the initial part of the encounter with the cigarette lady falls into this category. There were no other people in the store. I was alone. It was the afternoon. The year of the encounter was 1974, possibly 1975. I worked both summers between high school and college, and between my first and second years in college, but most likely 1974. The location was an area south of St. Louis, Missouri. I felt no lingering psychological effects from this encounter that I am aware of other than an extreme puzzlement and the blocked out memory of her hand. As to whether this changed me, I do not know. Consciously or not, Cartot is describing a being strikingly similar to the woman supposedly encountered by the abductee Antonio Villas Boas. Indeed, the pointed chin, exaggerated cheekbones, vestigial nose, and mouth are commonly reported characteristics of ostensibly alien entities and crop up with compelling frequency in the UFO literature. The visage has become synonymous with that of the gray, our commonly portrayed UFO occupant type with a massive black eyes and fetal characteristics. The greys are often described as sexless or even robotic, stirring discussions that they are in fact biological robots or even genetically atrophied human time travelers from our own ecologically impoverished future. Although the being described by Vilas Boas is perhaps the most obvious example of an apparently alien woman, one has to look no further than the cover of Whitley Strieber's iconic 1987 bestseller, Communion for Another. Often assumed to depict a male extraterrestrial, the text of Communion and subsequent books by Strieber emphasizes that being on the book's cover is, in fact, female. In a disquieting twist, researchers have noted a conspicuous resemblance between the communion alien and Lamb, the magical entity allegedly summoned by the controversial occultist Aleister Crowley. Like Strieber's female contacts and Velas Boas seductress, Lamb's portrait emphasizes a memorable tapered face with dramatically pointed chin and minimal nose and mouth, suggesting a common origin. At least some of the infamous men in black would also seem to fit this mold. Cartot's cigarette lady seems to fit the pattern. Even the purchase of cigarettes, however, seemingly preposterous, is in keeping with reports by self-proclaimed abductees who have described the smell of cigarette smoke in context of their encounters. The distinctive repellent odor of sulfur is a more common variant with both mythological and folkloric antecedents. Antecedents. I propose tentatively that the beings featured in this encounter are alien only in the sense that they seem exceedingly strange to us. Their predominantly humanoid manner and ability to function in normal human reality, if fleetingly, argue that they're denizens of our own planet. Perhaps they're materializations of the sort postulated by John Keel in the books such as The Mothman Prophecies and The Eighth Tower. Of course, the unmistakably elfin qualities described by the UFO witnesses suggest Jacques Vallée's heretical notion of a multiverse inhabited by all manner of humanoid intelligences, a hypothesis that begs a scientific analysis of unlikely contact reports attributed to indigenous beings such as 
fairies, the fae folk. Alternatively, liminal beings like Cartart cigarette women might, or sorry, cigarette woman might represent a race of human alien hybrids, as argued by Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs. Apparently unable to pass among us for great lengths of time, the hybrids oversee might. Or oversee what might be content to allow their creations to practice certainly or certain basic social skills in a relatively unbounded setting, at least for short amount of time. Of course, the answer could be a fusion of any of the above possibilities, or we could be dealing with a phenomenon generated at least partly by the psyche, the supposed aliens that witnesses see within and outside of UFOs might be examples of what Dr. John Mack termed reified metaphor a physical intrusion of repressed archetypical forces if so it's all too tempting to speculate that the daemonic reality traditionally assessed by shamanic cultures has begun to spill over into waking consciousnesses manifesting a veritable onslaught of beings quietly seeking to reassert influence in a mechanistic society, the capital O Other might find itself faced with extinction, violations of restricted airspace, and face-to-face -face encounters with unsuspecting observers could amount to a kind of existential assertion begging the possibility that our capacity for belief is somehow integral to our visitors' reality, if indeed visitors is a proper term. In Transformation, Whitley Strieber's follow-up to his best-selling Communion, he relates an unusual encounter between Bruce Lee, a colleague in the publishing business, and two people with their faces obscured by scarves, hats, and sunglasses. The beings, short in stature, were rapidly thumbing through copies of Communion and commenting on it. Intrigued, Lee asked them what they thought of the book which he had just hit bookshelves, uh, which had just hit bookshelves. Only then did he notice that despite attempts to conceal their features, they appeared not unlike the iconic gray featured on the Communion's cover. I asked Streber about this incident in an online chat, curious if the beings Lee had supposedly seen were big-eyed greys or more human-like, perhaps fitting the general description of hybrids. Streber insisted the people in the bookstore were identical to the creature on the cover of Communion. Further, he was convinced that Lee had told him the truth. Streber added that he had personally seen human-looking beings working with the greys, but didn't elaborate. Given his more recent musings on the nature of the abduction experience, one is left to wonder if the humans seen in the midst of the apparent non-humans were themselves alien in some crucial respect or else non-human beings in exceptionally clever disguises. Of course, many dismiss Streber. Some of his assertions, while governed by a curious internal logic, seem too outlandish or simply too frightening for consciousness. But similar episodes have been recounted by others. Taken together, these accounts paint a bizarre picture of aliens in our midst, some predominantly humanoid in appearance, others conforming to the gray archetype. Regularly described as frail or even sickly, these little remarked visitors play a quiet but important role in the crypto-terrestrial agenda. They behave skittishly, as if painfully aware of the possibility of their detection. Paradoxically, they can also act with surprising confidence, establishing a deep rapport with normal humans and disappearing just as mysteriously. 
Like the fairies of Celtic mythology, these emissaries are enticingly liminal. At once warmly and wary, while they seem entirely physical, their home turf seems to be a Killian interzone, as if their passport to our domain forever hovers on the verge of expiration. Despite differences in appearance, commonly reported traits suggest a common origin. Cryptoterrestrials like greys typically encountered in altered states or onboard evident vehicles tend to have long fingers, pointed chins, and large heads. Their complexion, usually pale or ashen, has also been described as olive or even sunburn. Perhaps most revealing, their eyes are almost always described as slanted and Asian-like, begging the possibility that, in an abstruse way, they are Asian perhaps descendants of some lost colony that diverged from the genetic mainstream tens of thousands of years ago. Ever reclusive, their successors may thrive below ground or beneath bodies of water. Geologists sometimes complain with justified exasperation that we know more about the surface of the moon than the topology of our own home planet. Incidentally, the little people of folklore are regularly cited emerging from underground communities a thread that we'd rediscovered among recent accounts of alien abduction or even the enduring conspiracy lore of the American Southwest, where spindly beings from the Zedi Reticuli are said to have established subterranean cities in conjunction with human scientists. Visitation from the sky is at least as common, and the invisible college, Jacques Vallée, points out that all known creation myths involve beings from above. Anthropologists attribute this to our innate fascination with the cosmos just above our heads, which plays such a pivotal role in the formation and sustained existence of our communities. But it's just as possible that some of these mythical accounts stem from actual encounters with airborne gods, posing the notion that the crypto-terrestrials, despite their maddening ambiguity and disciplined stealth, may view themselves as our benefactors are superiors. Indeed, ancient accounts of non-human intervention throw the modern spectacle of the UFO abductions and sightings of humanoids into a disorienting light, while to all appearances it's the others in dire need of us. There's at least some reason to think we owe our existence to them. As we continue to sort through the subterfuge and misdirection, we find ourselves in a troubling Escher-like territory our own genetic legacy abruptly lost in the depths. We find ourselves treading an existential ledge, wondering what role we ultimately play. The trite dichotomy of humans and aliens is revealed as inadequate. The truth is metamorphic, so ancient that our coexistence with indigenous humanoids has become oddly invisible, a secret kept just out of conscious reach. If the crypto-terrestrials are real and indeed living among us, or at least secluded in enclaves, they must have a sense of ethics, a guiding morality, or at least it's comforting to think so. The simple fact that they haven't taken over our planet could be proof that they harbor no genocidal grudge. But it could just as easily mean that they need us, either for our genes or for esoteric reasons. But this kicks up our, its own share of questions. If they're underpopulated and need humans to refresh their gene pool, forsaking secrecy and claiming the planet on their own terms would allow their population to expand to viable proportions. We'd no longer be needed, so why are we allowed to continue to exist? 
by almost any ecological standard, we're terrible neighbors. Do they feel sorry for us? Are they convinced that through careful psychological engineering they can improve our relationship, albeit without our consent, thus steering the biosphere from the brink of collapse? Or are they, even now, eyeing our endeavors with mounting alarm and suspicion? With, will they ever come to a point that brings the CTs out of hiding, if only to turn the tables on their uneasy truce with our civilization? Perhaps they'd like to, but can't. The evidence suggests their accomplished illusionists and insidiously clever strategists endowed with abilities once ascribed to the domain of magic, but they give little indication of violence, at least in a military sense. Perhaps their technology, remarkable as it is, isn't conducive to the kind of effort required to invade and conquer. Indeed, with our nuclear missiles and arsenal of black ops aircraft, we might pose a considerable threat to them. Like the vampires in Whitley Strieber's The Hunger, the CTs might be a race and decline. Stealth, it seems, comes with a price. The lack of infrastructure we take for granted. Maybe the CTs have no real plans for overt colonization. We tend to project our own tendencies onto aliens. If we were in their place, we'd inevitably feel subjugated, even claustrophobic. Inevitably, at least some of us would choose to fight back, even if our efforts were desperate and feeble. But the CTs remain strangely pacifist. Either they really are at the mercy of our omnipresent post-industrial society, or they have plans in store that we have yet to discern. In The Threat, David Jacobs argues that alien hybrids will ultimately reign, with humans reduced to a secondary role. One could reasonably argue that the CTs are waging a long-term war of attrition, slowly but methodically creating an army of hybrids to inherit and transform the human world. But folkloric evidence begs us to look in other directions. If they merely wanted the planet, they could have taken it from us long ago, before the invention of doomsday weapons, the modern surveillance technology. Instead, they seem to have left us to take our own route, or at least leave us with this impression. Given that they're content to remain marginal, we must consider that we're more than a reserve of DNA. The crypto-terrestrials must have other, less pragmatic motives. Witnesses' account offer tantalizing hints that the CTs are at least as intrigued by our minds as they are dependent on our genetics. If so, we could be more than we think we are. In the CTs, sorry, my accent is terrible. We think we are. And the CTs could be reaping an invisible harvest grown in the fertile soil of mind itself. Limited to short-term agendas and materialistic obsessions, we wouldn't necessarily notice. But if the CTs' penchant for psychodrama persists through the next century, and so far it shows no signs of stopping, we just might catch a more expansive look at their goals. But will we like what we see? Chapter 11, Final Thoughts Greg Bishop posits that brushes with the paranormal, just like encounters with genuine art, convey meaning by remaining purposefully elusive. My own creative powers, such as they are, suffer when I try to adhere to a template, which is one of the reasons I try to keep away from writing how-to texts, as seductive as some of them are. But when I relax my guard, never an easy trick, I find that meaning and structure often arises of their own volition. The field of ufology suffers from a related problem. 
The Tazic assumption that UFOs and other elements of Fortiana must necessarily yield to a single consciously derived explanation, whether the hallowed extraterrestrial hypothesis or something else. I'd argue that Bud Hopkins' insistence that the small white-skinned entities are literal aliens is a lamentable, simple-minded, or as lamentably simple-minded as Susan Clancy's own wholesale ignorance of the abduction enigma as portrayed in her book, Abducted, How People Came to Believe They Were Kidnapped by Aliens. Aliens in jumpsuits may simply be how the modern Western mind reacts to the reality-transforming stimulus of cryptoterrestrials. In a similar manner, explaining the beings as ancestral ghosts could be equally valid. In each case, the mind excesses a comprehensible psychic vocabulary to describe an event that may defy empirical analysis. This isn't to say Hopkins is wrong. Perhaps we really are dealing with more or less comprehensible biped aliens with white skin and a penchant for shiny jumpsuits. But the UFO encounter evidence has roots that go far deeper in contemporary infatuation with abductions. When the phenomenon is examined historically, it seems more likely that the aliens insinuate themselves into a given cultural matrix by appealing to be ready-made mythologically constructs. Thus, the near-endless procession of elves, dwarves, fairies, and saucer pilots that haunt our attempts to discern the others. I think someone is in there. But to ascribe non-human visitations to Hopkins meddling, Intruders is to play into a long-standing perceptual trap, and the toll might not be merely intellectual. If we're dealing with a truly alien intelligence, there's no promise that its thinking will be linear. Indeed, its inherent weirdness might serve as an appeal to an aspect of the psyche we've allowed to atrophy. It might be trying to rouse us from our stupor in which case it's tempting to wonder if the supposed ETs are literally us in some arcane sense. I alternate between grave misanthropy and chomping at the bit optimism. If the human species is destined to fail, wiped out by its own toxic excesses or slaughtered by warfare, I see no real point in continuing. An extraterrestrial biologist would argue that they're simply taking up time in which the planet could excrete a new biosphere from which a more promising intelligence might arise. But, of course, we do not know where we're headed. So we, might, so we make educated forecasts and hope that our warnings are, headed before it's, are, are heeded before it's too late. All too often, this seems like an exercise in futility. Sometimes I fear that we've reached a critical threshold that the human population will be decimated before we can ensure a meaningful, abundant world for ourselves and our descendants. This may well not be human in the contemporary sense. For Earth and its teeming billions of passengers, the end is always nigh. For too long, we've relied on blind luck and narrow escapes. Despite brushes with cataclysm and the rigors of evolution, we've survived, but only barely. Although I harbor serious reservations about humans' abilities to make the evolutionary cut, I'm not without hope. I sense great things in the making. I enjoy experiencing this dire, ever-accelerating point in our species' history. Our potentially as genuine cosmic citizens challenges, or our position as potential cosmic citizens challenges the imagination and stretches the conceptual boundaries to a dizzying extreme. I'm willing to embrace transcendence or endure extinction. I must perpetually concede either possibility, no matter how dramatically different, regardless of how exciting or dismal, means I walk a fine existential edge.
fearing, and cherishing, enlivened by a vertiginous sense of astonishment and horror. The End Everybody will be happy to 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 be happy